0: As you're turning there I want to read to you a passage from 3rd John, 2 verses actually, in 3rd John as you're turning to 2nd Timothy chapter 2 this morning I'm going to be speaking on the subject of five descriptions of a servant of Christ out of that passage but before I do that I want to read a couple of verses to you sort of by way of introduction. In 3rd John verse 3 and verse 11 John says it gave me great joy to have some brothers come and tell of your faithfulness to the truth and how you continue to walk in truth. Verse 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children, the people not obviously who are children of His physically but spiritually, continue to walk in the truth. And then verse 11, Dear friends, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. Anyone who does what is good is from God, and anyone who does what is evil... Has not seen God. In the last few days, I've had a, a, the opportunity to talk to a couple of graduates of the Masters College. Um, I was down at the Masters Seminary and was walking out of the building, and, and as I walked across the parking lot, a young man that uh, that graduated from the college recently ran, kind of ran up to me across the across the lot. And uh, as he ran up to me to catch me before I drove away in my car, we stood there for just a few minutes as he described to me just what God is doing in his life right now. And this young man who graduated from our college is in seminary. He's in the preparation of of going into full-time vocational ministry. He really feels like God is leading him to be a pastor. And you think, well, that's, what, what's the big deal about that? I mean, there's no, there's nothing remarkable about a young man responding to the call of God to be a pastor. Well, if you knew this guy, and I think if I mentioned his name, many of you do, in fact, know him, uh, he is one of the, probably would be one of the guys on my list of least likely candidates that I've ever met at the Master's College to go into the ministry. Uh, when I first came here to the Master's College, my second year as, as Dean of Men, uh, this guy and I spent a lot of time together in my office. Not because we were there praying and having good times of fellowship, but because we were spending untold hours talking about the his uh, his uh, undying habit of beating people up in the dorm, <laughs> and uh, and we needed to talk about that. You know, it was, it was a little problem that he couldn't understand why it was a problem. I mean, after all, that's how he always settled his problems in the past. And it wasn't just that he that he had a, a, a problem with violence, physical violence, but he had a real problem with his tongue. And being raised in the inner city, this guy. Uh, it was not uncommon for him at all to not only beat you up physically if you got in his way, but to beat you up verbally if you got in his way. And uh, he and I spent a lot, a lot of, lot of time together. Uh, one morning, I recall and it's the only time in my life that this has happened to me. Um, an RD called me and said, "Dave, it's early Saturday morning, and uh, that was a good picture on it. Early Saturday morning." <laughs> um, <laughs> this is going, this is going, you're not going to get a thing out of this message, are you? I just... Very serious subject. Okay. Early Saturday morning, uh, a resident director called me. One of the guys called me and said, "Dave, you got to, you got to get out of bed and come over to the campus." And um, and this, this had never happened to me before, and it's never happened since. And I said, "Why?" He said, "It is out of control in this room. Uh, the guys are fighting. I can't, I can't get control of it." Uh, we've had the security up there, they're scared to death, they're, you know, they're out there. You know. <laughs> There's a different force than we have now. Um, <laughs> and he said, so you've gotta help me. So I, I got on my clothes, at that time I lived out in this valley, now I live in San Fernando Valley, and, and got, stuck something on real quick, and uh, ran over to the campus, and, and in this room was this guy. A guy that I've been dealing with on numerous occasions already. And it, it was, it was out of control. I mean, he was out of control. The room was out of control. Everybody was out of control. And as soon as I walked into the room and sat down and, and said, okay, what's going on? The, the guy speaks up. And I said, no, I, uh, I don't want you to talk first. And he said, I don't care what you want. I'm talking. I mean, he's, he's all over me. He's starting to cuss at me. And, uh, and I, and I'm thinking, well, I think the RD can handle this, and you know. And <laughs> so we sat there for hours, dealing with this guy's life, and over the and that was his freshman year, and over the next two, three years, slowly, and almost imperceptibly, this guy started to change as God began to do a, a work in his soul or his heart, and it was really kind of it's sort of an, an unobservable thing at first. I mean, the only thing I knew was that he wasn't spending as much time in my office. And, and, uh, and I'm not going to complain. I wasn't complaining about that fact. Uh, but as time carried on, as he went into his junior and senior year, this was a, this was a different guy. He was just a totally different person. He came to this college with, with one agenda. And during his time here, God broke his heart through the ministry of the faculty, through the ministry of the Word of God, through the ministry of the people in the dormitories, through the ministry of chapel, through the ministry of his friends, through the ministry, in this guy's case, of coaches, because he was an athlete. And God just completely transformed what was a mess of a person, what was such an unattractive individual, someone that nobody wanted to be around. But people hung in there with him. You hung in there with him, if you were here as a student at that time during any of those four years. People who are not here any longer hung in him, in there with him. Staff that are now on staff hung in there with him. People who are not currently on staff hung in there with him. Hours and hours of time were invested in this young guy's life. And it, it really allows me, and I know to some degree, if you've been a part of this guy's life, it allows you as well, to really understand what John is saying in 3rd John. I have no greater joy than to hear that people that I have invested my life in spiritually continue to walk in the truth. I understand that. Because it's not just a, a, a cause of joy while you are here as a student to see that transformation taking place before our very eyes. It is in some ways even a greater joy to know that once you leave this college, once you get out of what many people in a pejorative way describe as a little bubble in a hothouse and a, hot house and a and all these, you know, a a greenhouse, and all these little terms that people say, this is not a real environment. But if it's not a real environment, why is it that so many people leave here time and time again and continue to walk in the faith because of what God did in their life while they were here? That's what it's all about. That's what it's all about. Is that when you leave here, and when you graduate, or whether you transfer, or don't come back for fine, whatever it is that God leads you to do after the Master's College, after life after the Master's College, that you continue to walk in the faith. That's what this college exists for. Not to just touch you for four years, but to touch you for eternity. And there's no greater joy than to hear that that's going on. Obviously, the reverse is true as well, isn't it? Not only is there no greater joy to hear that people continue to walk in the faith after they leave the Master's College, it is also equally no greater heartache than to hear that... Someone that we invested time, I invested time, and in, you invested time. In. Someone that had all of the outward sort of uh, packaging and, and remnants of spirituality, spirituality while they were here, they leave the college, and it just seems like they collapse into a into a spiritual and moral mess. And that's happened to me recently as well, as I received word from someone that. Uh, a person that was in a leadership position at the Master's College while they were here, someone that I considered to be a good friend, someone that I spent a lot of time with, someone that spent time in my home and with my family. And then I had casual contact with someone else and said, hey, have you heard about so-and-so? And my face lit up. I said, no, tell me, how's he doing? And the person went on to explain to me just just all of the this series of downward spiraling mistakes wrong choices and sinful directions that this person has taken. That's a hard thing. I got a phone call from my my dad the other day. And I've shared this with some of you already. When I was in college, one of my roommates is a guy named Tim. And Tim, Tim and I were from the same elementary school. We were from the same junior high. We were from the same high school. We played on the same baseball teams together. We played on the same football teams together. We, he lived right in his family, uh, lived very close to my family. My dad had a business, has a business, his dad has a business. They were involved together in different projects, in civic organizations, and also in business uh, ventures. I mean, this Tim and I were, were touching each other's lives at all points. I had older brother, he had an older sister, and, and they dated. And, uh, I mean, we just had all sorts of points of contact. Tim and I both were people in our high school years that were com- completely committed to immorality. I mean, we were just both com- committed to that. And uh, Tim and I did a lot of wicked things together. Tim and I bought choppers. And Tim and I drew our hair along to rebel against our parents. Tim and I ran away from home together. Tim and I... Did, we did all kinds of things together. But then something happened. A, a young man came to a church in our area. And began to share the gospel with people that were very unattractive people like myself and Tim. And God started doing the work. And I got saved. And Tim got saved. Some of our other friends got saved. And within a matter of just a short period of just a few weeks, Tim and I went to to college together. To a Christian college together. Uh, A college we'd never heard of. A college that we had no intention of going to, but God seemed to be working. And within just three short weeks after getting saved, I got in the car with Tim. Tim, and Tim and I drove to Tennessee to go to Christian College together to play on the baseball team there. And in college, we both worked in the same church together, and we continued to do all these things together. When I graduated from college, I went on to seminary. When Tim graduated from college, he really, because he was a man of great passion, and, and and I just wish that you could picture Tim and see him. He's he is a fireball of an individual. I mean, his, when he would preach, his arms would flail. He's a, he's a big guy, and he's got a PA system for a voice. He's, he's bigger than life. When he walks into the room, he's a big guy anyway. I mean, he's, he's, he's quite tall. He's about 6'3", and he's a heavy guy, has a giant voice, and he just has a beaming smile, and he's just got eyes that look like saucers. And he's a guy that when you walk into the room where he is, you just can't miss him. I mean, he's just that kind of individual. Someone that you're just drawn to as a fun guy, as a, a guy full of life, a full of passion for God. Someone that you just love to be around. And Tim got me involved in all kinds of ministries because of his enthusiasm. And right after college, Tim went to pastor a church in Memphis and uh, and stayed there for a number of years. He got married to a girl that my wife was a cheerleader in college and this girl was a cheerleader in college and they were good friends. And Tim married this cheerleader and I married that cheerleader and... And uh, and we both had pom poms hanging on our walls, you know. Um, and Tim Tim went on to pastor this church. Had three children. Has three children. We have two children. My dad called. I called my dad actually. I called my dad, and, and he said, "Hey, I was walking down town the other day, and I saw Tim." And I said, "Really?" And again, my life, same 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 response. Same thing that happened to me about the other guy recently. Dad said, hey, I, heard, I saw Tim. And my face just, you know, Dad can't see it, but my face just lights up. Tim! Oh yeah, Tim! Because, man, he's such a great guy. How's Tim doing? Because so my dad's an unbeliever. And it's, and it's not only my face lighting up because of Tim, but my face lights up because I get to talk to Dad about Tim. Do you ever have that experience? I get to talk to Dad about Tim. And that's, and that's kind of neat that my dad's bringing up Tim because Tim's a pastor and, and I'm in ministry and my dad's an unbeliever. It doesn't have much to do with that. So I said, well, how's he doing? He said, well, he's, he's, uh, he's moved back to, to West Virginia. I, said, I didn't know that. Is he pastoring a church there? And he said, no, no, he's, he's, uh, he's out of the ministry altogether. And he goes on to describe to me how that Tim's had an affair. His wife's had an affair. The children are, are they don't even, the, neither one of them are right now in custody of the children. They're not even sure where the children are because the courts aren't wanting them to know that. Um, it's just an absolute mess, And just to the, to the degree that it is a matter of joy to hear that students walk in truth after they leave the college, to that degree of joy is also that same sense of heartache to hear the opposite, isn't it? And hopefully, hopefully you're going to know as you invest your life and continue to do so in people's lives around you, students and others in your churches, hopefully you're going to know something about what I've just described to you sort of briefly, of what it really feels like in your gut to hear about a person that you've invested time in, that you've prayed with, that you've stood beside in ministry, maybe in a missions conference, maybe in a summer missions team, someone that has touched your life spiritually because Tim Tim has contributed to who I am spiritually. God has used Tim in my life. And as you continue to walk with the Lord and, and continue to engage yourself in ministry, you're going to have those kinds of experiences. In fact, one of the things I really pray for you is that you're really going to feel the deep heartache of what it means to have someone that you really have learned to love and give yourself to turn away from God. So it's a hard thing. It's a joyful thing to hear the opposite, but it's a, it's a very difficult thing to hear it when they don't do it. And guys and gals, when you leave the college, you're going to go out into a world that John has called you to, to continue to walk in that world according to truth. According to the message and the challenges and the, and the life that you have been presented with and modeled with by the faculty and staff, taught, engaged yourself in while you're here at the Master's College. But at the same time, you're going to walk out of here into a world that is utterly and totally and pervasively committed to everything that is the opposite of what you are receiving here at the Master's College. Everything that we hold high and dear is what the world despises. That's the challenge that's before you. It's not just a challenge of walking according to truth and contending with all of the, the remnants of fallenness that is within your soul as a person who is not completely... Completely sanctified yet. But also walking according to truth in a world that is utterly under the control of the enemy. I mean, that's what we face. That's what you face. That's what I face. Is walking according to truth in that world. And this morning, I don't have time to go through all the things that you will face. And there are an unbelievable amount of issues that you're going to have to contend with as you leave the college. As you go on to post the master's college. And I, we just don't have time to go through a catalog list even of all of those kinds of things that you're going to have to face, that you're going to have to make decisions on, that you're going to have to choose whether you're going to walk according to truth on this issue or not. But there is one issue that I want to give you this morning that I want to mention to you. It's an issue that, that our president a few years ago said in one of his books that he believes the greatest challenge facing the church in the 1990s is going to be this issue. Another man, a theologian that I greatly respect, a man of 39 years of age, was considered to be probably the sharpest theological mind alive at that time, said the same thing. In the 1990s, this is going to be the issue that is going to bring the church to its knees. You know what that issue is? Both of these men said those things about the same issue. And that issue that they're talking about And that you and I are facing already and are even going to face to a greater degree as time goes on in the United States and around the world. And something that you're going to have to know how to respond to if you're going to walk according to truth is the issue of homosexuality. That is a very real issue. In addition to the little vignettes of the students that I just described to you, another thing that God has allowed me the privilege of doing since I've been to Master's College is being involved in the lives of students who either have homosexuality in their past as an activity, as a lifestyle, or homosexuality as something that they even struggle with right now as a sinful desire in their heart. It is a very real thing. And it's not something that's just out there. It is something that is inside the church. It is something that we contend with here on the campus of the Masters College. I mean, we can we can pretend that we don't. We could we could sort of give press releases on the Masters College students, like we did the athletic teams here. You know, we could great year, great year, great year, and then we get to Bruce Burnham's report. You know, the student body and say, but we do have a a real struggle with homosexuality with some students, and it's a very real thing here. It is a struggle for some of the students that are sitting around. Here. It is in some cases something that they've been involved in as a lifestyle before they came to know Christ. And just because they've come to know Christ, in some cases it doesn't mean, in some cases God has just completely eliminated any struggle with that at all. In some cases that's not been true. That's not happened. It's a real issue on this campus. It's a real issue in the world. It's a real issue that you as a member of a church someday is going to have to face and know how to decide what to do about it. It's a real issue economically, politically, spiritually. And hopefully it's a real issue for you, even in your circle of friends. Because it's for too many years the church has done with homosexuality what we used to do with divorce. It's sort of like we don't want to hear about it. We don't want to talk about it. We don't want to acknowledge that it's a problem. It's not something that we want to discuss. It's not something that we want to be a part of. And so anytime someone's engaged in that whether they claim to be a Christian or not, let's just put them outside the community of believers and not deal with it. But that's not a right response. I really believe that if you and I are going to be people who are going to continue to walk in truth as we go out of the Master's College, and even as we live here on the campus of the Master's College, we need to be equipped with what the Bible says about that issue and how to contend with that issue. Because it's a very real issue. And as you think about that, I was... I, I've been reading a book, and uh, one of the things that really makes this a very real issue that you and I must be equipped to deal with is three things about the homosexual community as an activist group in our country right now. And that is these three things. They're aggressive, they're reckless, in other words, they're willing to just do anything to promote their cause, and it's a very able community. It's a very, very capable group of people to promote their lifestyle and their agenda. And there is an agenda. And they're very aggressive about it. They're very reckless about it. And they're very able to carry it out. This morning I I turned around to some friends of mine that that were here to to hear chapel, and and she had her children here. And I said, you know, probably isn't a good idea for you to have your kids here this morning because of some things I'm going to read. And and what I was talking about is some excerpts that I just want to mention to you out of this book that I'm reading in regard to the aggressiveness of, of the homosexual movement, as you know that California is on the leading edge of that movement, we could say that uh, uh, Southern California and San Francisco are probably the, the greatest proponents of the movement politically. And one of the things that really promotes the agenda of the homosexual community is the fact that they, in an increasing manner, are becoming more and more of a public group. Right? It is something that you and I now have to deal with on television. We used to have to deal with it maybe on the street corner in print, but now its you can't avoid it. In fact, one of the music stations now, one of the cable channels is committing itself to a, a comedy hour that is entirely staffed by homosexuals, gays and lesbians, and is addressed to the gay and lesbian community. It's starting. If it hasn't started this week, it's next week, right before Christmas. They wanted to get it on to celebrate Christmas. It's starting right now. It is something that's in your face about the way we deal with life right now. And one of the things that they do is to kind of promote their agenda and cause is to get out into the public in all ways possible. And one of the ways that they've been doing that is through parades. And, and it's an interesting it's an interesting uh, description that's in this book about a parade that just took place in California. It says, walking down the street beside... Floats are a number of men dressed in women's nighties and pantyhose and and bright blue or red wings, dancing among them as a bald-headed woman naked from the waist up. This took place, this didn't take place, by the way, in some holler in West Virginia. This took place in the middle of a major city with TV cameras rolling. I mean, it's all all right there in front of it. It's something that you and I and our children are going to have to contend with and deal with says, another man stoops to pose for a video camera. He's wearing a pink evening gown and has curlers in his hair. Lying on the sidewalk near a curb, a long-haired man in shorts has pulled his pants down and is kicking his legs in the air as though he's trying to attract attention. Standing in the crowd, two gay lovers fondle one another, unconscious of the peering onlookers. And the description in this book is incredible as it goes on and on and on to describe what is now taking place in the middle of the city streets that you and I live in. It's a very real thing. You can't even turn on the television. I can't even, I used to be able to let my children sit with me and watch the evening news. I can't even do that any longer. I have to screen the news. It's to the point where I can't even have our two boys watch television at all. It's almost, we're almost totally to the point of videotape now because we're at least, we have some assurance of what's going to happen from start to end because even on just the news magazines and regular nightly news, this stuff is just, it's like in your face in front of you. And one of, the, one of the fallouts of that happens to be that by presenting this issue and this agenda over and over and over again in a public forum, you and I become desensitized to its wickedness. I mean, that's one of the, the agendas of doing that. The parade isn't just a matter of information for the world. It's a matter of desensitizing us to the heinousness of this sin. Another th- issue about the homosexual agenda is not just that it's aggressive, But it's also very reckless. In other words, there's an abandonment that is going on in the homosexual community to give themselves totally to their cause. Millions of dollars are are donated every year to support the homosexual agenda. Media blitzes, blitzes, researchers, and, and organizations among American Indians and Filipinos and Latin men and African American men. It's just unbelievable the kind of abandonment people have to this issue. It's almost embarrassing. It's almost like they have an evangelistic zeal about them. A third issue is that they're a very able people to to promote their agenda. And And there's all kinds of statistics in this book. But in this book, it talks about how many of the people in the homosexual community vote, how many of them have higher education, how many of them hold public office, How many of them are involved in in, uh, civic organizations? And in each case, in each case, they far exceed the national average. In each case. You take the statistic for higher education, the homosexual community exceeds that by about 20 percentage points. You take the voting statistics of the general populace of the United States, the homosexual community exceeds that by about 30 percentage points. They are a very able group. They are endowed with huge amounts of money, huge amounts of people, and huge amount of support from the public media. It's a very real issue. And as we face that issue in the world that you and I are living with, and in Second Timothy chapter 2, look at that, Paul says to Timothy, but mark this, terrible times in the last days, Several times will be a part of the last days and people will wax worse and worse in chapter 3, verse 1. And what I want to tell you, as much as I could describe and I could go through this book and just give you statistic after statistic and paint for you as vividly as I could, even maybe to the point of, of, of kind of walking too closely to the edge of violating your own conscience, we could do that this morning, but, but no matter what it is I describe today, on December the, what is it, the 6th of 1993. Next year, according to our own experience and according to the very words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 1, it's going to be worse. Whatever the world was like on this issue when you came in as a freshman, it's going to be worse when you leave as a senior. Whatever it's like now while you're a college student, it's going to be much worse when you go out and you get a family and you engage yourself in ministering a local church. It's a very real issue. And it's something that you're going to just have to equip yourself as a Christian to know how to continue with. The key isn't to join some political activist group. The key isn't suicide. The key isn't starting some sort of Christian space shuttle program and all moving to Mars. The key is the same key now as it's always been in Christian history that Jesus Christ Himself articulated in John chapter 17. The key is that you and I are to be in the world. And if we're in the world, having contact with wickedness around us so that we can be a salt and a light before those people, but to not be of the world. And when Paul addressed that dynamic of being in the world and not of the world to Timothy, he said the key to doing that is to be a person who maintains your commitment to being a servant of Jesus Christ. And he calls Timothy to that in verse 24 of chapter 2. He said, And you, Timothy, must be the person who would be described as a servant of the Lord. And then he goes on in those two verses, three verses, 22, 23, and 24, to give five descriptions of what a servant of the Lord looks like and how a servant of the Lord arranges their life out of the dynamic of their relationship with Jesus Christ, so that they can walk according to truth and stand in opposition to the wickedness that is all around them. And these are the five descriptions that I just want to run through for you. Number one, verse 24, he says, And the Lord's servant, first of all, in the first description, must be a person who does not quarrel. Interesting, isn't it? It's an interesting point to start with for Paul. Literally, the word that is in this text in the Greek Uh, text of this passage is a term that describes hand-to-hand combat. It's the same word that is used for a soldier fighting. It's a person who is a quarrel or who's a fighter, who's a person who likes to engage themselves in in bickering and battling with words. And it's a very, I think, remarkable thing that as Paul describes this commitment that you and I have to truth and he talks about the wickedness of the world that we must find ourselves in as we commit ourselves to the truth, the first thing he says to us is, but don't be a quarreler. And he says it in a way that it's, it's in the text indicates that that's probably something that we're going to struggle with. As you and I come into contact with people who have fallen into error, and as you and I come into contact with those people equipped with truth and boldness and conviction, I can tell you right now, if you've not experienced it already, one of the tendencies that we have is to be a person who is energized by pride. And rather than being a person who is drawing that person to Jesus Christ, we become a person who who really would be described as a word battler, which is what Paul is describing here. And if you look through 2 Timothy, what Paul is doing there is he is describing the servant of the Lord in the context of instruction. And really, if it's a very close parallel to what happens in a college. Paul is instructing a group of believers on how to live in this world. You come to college and we give you instruction about how to follow Jesus Christ in this world. And if there's anything that you and I can know, do know about teaching and instruction, it is that if we're going to be under instruction, you and I are going to have to gain knowledge. And if there's anything else that we know about knowledge, Paul says in, Rome, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, knowledge puffs up. Simply stated... When you put yourself under any kind of instruction, there are two truisms. One, you've got to have knowledge. And two, knowledge is a problem. You've got to have knowledge if you're going to be the person that Jesus Christ called you to be, and so do I. But time and time again, the Bible says, but you know what? Knowledge becomes a problem and actually an obstacle to carrying out the expansion of God's kingdom. Paul dealt with that at great length in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10. He dealt with it again in Romans chapter 14. It is a tendency of the community of Christ and the group of believers as, as a community and individually to take knowledge that we're receiving from God's Word and from those who are instructing us and rather than letting that humble us and break us, we take that knowledge and we mix it with our self-centeredness and our pride and it becomes an instrument in our hands to create a an advantage over people which is what this person Paul is describing intends to do with his knowledge. Paul said, that's not what it's all about at all. When I give you instruction, don't take my instruction and fight people with it in anger and in hostility, but to take the knowledge and use it to draw them to Jesus Christ. So Paul says, if you're going to be a servant of Christ, you can't be a fighter of words. Have you ever been around someone who was like that? Someone who was talking about very precious spiritual things in a very... Proud, arrogant, almost hostile, demeaning tone. I remember a couple of years ago we had a Bible study it was off campus, and, and this group of uh, students had gotten together to study the, the doctrines of grace. And if you're not familiar with what that means, it means the basically the doctrines of uh, TULIP, the, the doctrines of limited atonement, and and uh, and all of the things that the, the, the Calvin is known for. And it was a really good group of people for the most part. And then I started getting phone calls from other students around the campus talking to me about, man, I, I don't know how to deal with this guy. I mean, he's beaten me to death with the doctrines of grace. And I thought, well, you know, I've, I've heard this over so many weeks. I'm going to call this one individual in. I did. I called him into my office and said, you know, explain to me what's going on. And, and he starts talking to me about his commitment to the Lord and his commitment to the doctrines of grace and limited atonement and, and election and predestination and all stuff. You know, it's, it's like, ah, this is just I'm enjoying this. We're talking... You know, what does the Bible teach about very significant issues? And then I said, well, what about your relationship with the students, uh, you know, who maybe don't hold to these doctrines? And then it's sort of like, you ever see a guy kind of get these little blotches under, you know, kind of, it's just sort of like he starts getting heated up and his tone entirely changed. And there was an edge to it, an anger to it. And I said, whoa, 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 wait a second. If this is a work of God, then that spirit has no place in it. That's what Paul is describing. There's a tendency that you and I face when we are given new information to take that and rather than to help people, we beat them with it. I remember when I first went back to home from college, my first trip back home from Christian college. And when I went back home, I took the things I had learned in class and I, and I started to give instruction to my mom, my dad, my brothers, my pastor, my uh, Sunday school teacher, our dogs, I mean anything. And I, all of a sudden, I left, I left the house of a brand new Christian knowing nothing. And in one semester time, it's such a, re, such a marvelous thing that I had turned into this theological giant. And now I was beating everybody down with my knowledge. And Paul said, that's a real tendency. Guys, gals, I hope you're committed to knowledge. But I hope you're also committed to the understanding that knowledge can be a very damaging instrument in your hand, driven by pride. The second description that Paul gives us says, not only must you be a person who is not quarrelsome, but he goes on to flip the coin and he says, don't be a quarrelsome person. In contrast, be a person who is characterized by kindness. And he describes it, he mentions that in the text here. He says, be a kind person. It is the same term that Paul uses to describe himself in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 7. He said, when I came to minister to you, I was a person who ministered with kindness, with with mildness is another way of putting this term. I was a person who was as Paul described himself, as a mother who was nursing her children. It was a very tender, gentle description that Paul gave of himself. I'd often if there's if I if God would grant any wish for me, it would be that the apostle Paul could come back right now so I could meet him and see what in the world this guy was like because he was a man of such incredible intellectual strength, right? To write Romans and the other books that he did. A, a man of incredible unsurpassed fortitude. But time and time again, when you read about Paul sharing what's going on in his heart, he does it with, with a tear. And right now at, at, at Grace Community, where I go, John is preaching through Second Corinthians, and Second Corinthians is one of my fav- favorite books. Because in that, Paul sort of takes the curtain back from his heart and kind of shows us what, what's going on inside. And time and time again, when Paul talks about the sin that is going on in the people's lives around him, as he talks about what's happening to people who've turned away from the truth that he's instructed them in, he does it in tears. He does it with a, an expression of brokenness and gentleness. And that's the person that Paul is describing for you and I to be as we go out into the world to contend against wickedness. Not a quarrelsome person, but a gentle person. A person that Paul said is almost like a a mother nursing her child. Gentle, soft. Then he goes on to give a third description. Not only must you be non-quarrelsome and gentle, but be a person who is skillful in teaching. The first two are sort of manner descriptions. Not a fighter out, someone who doesn't have the manner of battling, someone who has the manner, manner rather, of gentleness. But now he's talking about ability. And he says the key ability for you and me to have and to be equipped with if we are to go out and to change the world and to touch people with the gospel of Jesus Christ is that we must not just have knowledge, but we must have the ability to communicate knowledge. That is That is imperative if the kingdom of Christ is going to be expanded. And here at the college, that is a, a, there is a great emphasis that we place upon the issue of communication. God didn't just create you to be a receptacle of truth. He created you and me to be a channel of truth. For us to take what God is doing in our life and to turn around and to share it with people around it. And have the ability to skillfully... its The term that Paul uses for skillful there is a term that is a very exacting architectural idea that he has in mind someone who who has really plotted and thought through the implications of this turn and connecting this point with this point. It is a person who obviously has taken great care and diligence to equip themselves with what they need to do their job. And that's who Paul says that we must be if we're to go out into the world and to change it, and to touch it with the Gospel of Christ. The fourth description he gives now, in the fifth one, it's interesting, he says, here's the manner... The manner is non-quarrelsome, gentle. Here's the ability, and there's only one word that that refers to ability in this text, and the ability is skillful. And then he said, and here's the attitude. And he gives two words that describe the internal attitude of the servant of Christ. The manner, the ability, and the attitude of the servant. And here are the two words that he gives us in this text. You and I have the attitude of forbearance and meekness. Forbearance and meekness that we are motivated internally in our heart by these two issues. And these terms are really interesting terms. The word forbearance is a term that really literally means in the Greek ready to put up with evil. Isn't that interesting? Ready to put up with evil. You know what that's assuming there? That you're actually having contact with evil. And not only are you having contact with evil, but you're having contact over and over and over again with the same people who are engaged in the same evil. And not just contact and repeated contact, but contact that you're having with them for a specific purpose, and that is to touch them with the truth of Christ's Word. Now, you put those three things together. Contact, repeated contact, and a transforming contact. If you're committed to those things, it's going to take an internal heart resolve to put up with evil. A readiness to put up with evil. A readiness to be aggravated by someone's sinfulness. A readiness to be willing to be humiliated by someone's sinfulness. A readiness to even be, even maybe taken advantage of because of someone's sinfulness. A readiness to even look dumb because of someone's sinfulness. To find yourself so committed to being used of God to see someone move in a Godward direction that when they, when they reject you and when they walk away from you, they may even turn their back on you and make fun of you. And you know they're making fun of you, but you're ready to put up with that. Because your concern isn't you and your status and what people think about you. Your concern is them. I, I, the, one of the, the weirdest things I had happened was one time in my office, this guy came in, two guys came in and we were talking in the office, and I used to be down the student center. And when we got finished talking about what was going on in their lives in front of me, in my face, I mean, there was this there's this real expression of repentance. I mean, at the Masters College, it isn't an issue of demerits; it's an issue of are you genuinely repentant? That's where we want to bring you in response to your sin. And some of you are really good. You know, you you've learned how to kind of express repentance outwardly, and these two guys were really good at it. And I'm sitting there in my office, and I'm thinking, you know, I think I'm being I think I'm being given a line here, and you're sitting there, and I'm already wrestling with, okay, what do I do? Do I, do I, do I allow that to happen? Do I let them take advantage of me? I mean, they're they're playing the game, and, and I even said to them, you know, I think you are playing the game with me. Oh no, Dave, you know we're, you know, forgive us, we're sorry, you know, and we're really committed to the Lord, and uh, and, and in front of me, and we prayed together, and they got up and they walked out of my office. And for some reason, I needed to walk out immediately. I didn't tell them that. They just got up and turned around and walked out. I got up out of my chair, and I needed to go talk to someone that was out in the student center who was waiting on me because I was late because of this meeting. And the guys didn't know that I was walking right behind them. And as the two of them were walking out, they didn't realize I was behind them. They they shut the door behind my office. They shut the door behind my secretary's office. And they're in the hallway walking to the student center. And they're starting to laugh. Oh, man. (laughs) Dave is a real... And they used a, a less than flattering word to describe me, and then they were just just having the greatest old time, just just relishing in the fact that they'd taken advantage of me and pulled one over on me. And I thought, you know, what do you feel when that happens? I feel the same thing you feel. What did I want to do? I wanted to grab them by the hair, and, you know, kind of do the the Hulk thing, <clears throat> you know, and, the, and, and and deal with this thing. Because you feel that and I feel that. If you're going to be committed to dealing with evil, then Paul says the inner heart attitude that you're going to have to have is forbearance. A readiness to expose yourself to the negative impact of other people's sin. The other word that he uses is the word that is very similar to the first one, gentleness. is the word meekness. And what Paul says is that you're going to have to have the manner of non quarrelsome and gentleness the ability of skillfulness, calculating and working through and understanding and grasping and communicating the Word of God. And you're going to have to have the twin attitudes of forbearance, a readiness to put up with evil, and the other attitude of meekness. And a person who is a meek person that the New Testament describes preeminently as the Savior Jesus Christ. Someone who can say, you know, me and my needs and me and what I desire, and me and my comfort is not the issue. I am here to give myself to you as a servant of God to touch your life with truth and with grace and with forgiveness and with mercy. I can put myself aside. I can make the decision when I feel like taking your head and and smashing it against the wall under the ministry of the Holy Spirit, I can say, you know while I might desire to do that, I'm going to set that aside. Because the real issue here is not how your sin's even affecting me. Even though that's not a non-issue. I mean, it's a part of what's going on in your life that I need to deal with. But that's not what I'm going to respond to you about. When you even sin against me as people sinned against Christ, how did Christ respond to that? The important issue in Christ's heart wasn't how people's sin affected Him, but how people sin that did affect Him Reflected on what their relationship was or was not with God. That's what a meek person is like. It is a person who makes the choice to step through how I'm being impacted by your sin to address what your sin means to you in your walk with God. Man, that's that's only something the Holy Spirit is going to be able to produce. Is that kind of meek. Because everything in you and everything in me swells up inside of us, but when someone directs their sin against us, we want to retaliate, don't we? And a meek ter- person by definition is a non-retaliating individual. This is our Lord. That's the description Paul gives you. Let's pray together. Father, we just thank you for your truth. Lord, we, we want to be people who will walk with you and people who will be characterized by your love and by your forbearance and your meekness and your gentleness. God, the issues are tremendous. They are eternal in their implication. And God, we want to be agents in your kingdom for your glory. In Christ's name we pray.